Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's episode is a little different, and I'm really excited to be sharing it with you for the podcast. Instead of my normal interviews, where I'm the one asking the questions, Today's interview is taken from an event that I attended last month, hosted by my good friend James Mitra at JBM Consulting. Now, for those of you who don't know, JBM are an executive search firm that places top talent into high-growth tech firms, fintechs, and consultancies. They are also the talent partner to the fintech-focused private equity firm Motive Partners, which is where the event that you're about to listen to was held. When James told me about the event and told me who was going to be speaking, I said that we had to record it for the podcast because I knew it was going to be a great interview and it certainly didn't disappoint. Now, before I share who that guest is, although if you're listening to this on your podcast app, you've probably guessed from the title, I wanted to just answer the question that some of you might be thinking, which is, why are you getting a guest from outside of the consulting industry on a consulting podcast? I am a big believer that you can and you should learn from the best, regardless of their field, because you can learn a lot from how people have achieved in other areas that you can bring in to help improve your consulting business or your own consulting career. And as you'll hear in today's interview, there are so many fantastic insights that are shared that are equally applicable to consulting firms and your clients. 
as they are to today's guest's specific industry. So who is it? Who was James interviewing? Who are you about to hear from? The person that James was speaking to on the night was Ian Martin, former managing director of Moonpig. Now, for those of you who are listening to this from outside of the UK, and you might not have heard of Moonpig, or for those of you who live in the UK but haven't watched television for the last 10 years, Moonpig are the UK's largest online card retailer, with over 15 million cards sent through their online platform in 2017 alone. Simply put, they are the Google of personalised cards in the UK. If you want to send a personalised card, they are the place you will go. Ian was one of the early members of the Moonpig team, and over his time as MD, grew the business from just eight people turning over £2 million to a team of over 160 turning over £60 million a year. This phenomenal growth ultimately led to Moonpig being acquired by Photobox for £120 million in 2011. James and Ian cover some really interesting topics in this conversation and the Q&A that follows, including Ian's unorthodox approach to becoming the MD of Moonpig, the importance of using data when it comes to your marketing and how using data helped Moonpig achieve its rapid growth, how Ian and the team ensured they hired the best talent for the business and their unconventional approach to rewarding their team. The sale, as I know a number of you are interested in hearing about more about how people exit their businesses, the sale to Photobox and the steps that they took from deciding when was the right time to sell through to integrating the business with their new owners and all of the challenges that they faced throughout that journey. And the one that I know many of you will want to know, how did they decide on the name Moonpig and where did that famous jingle come from? It was great to meet Ian at the event, and I really enjoyed hearing his story and his advice for those looking to grow their businesses as successfully as he did. So without further ado, please enjoy today's episode with Ian Martin. For those of you that don't know Moonpig, I think probably everyone does. If you're like me, Moonpig, I'm a, I'm a loyal consumer. Normally when I've forgotten an important birthday or anniversary or something last minute, um, but Ian was fundamental to the success of, of Moonpig and we thought it would be awesome to have a chat with him now for him to share some insights on his career, tell some stories and then open it to the floor for some questions. So, Ian, thanks very much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess I wanted to start with, you, you've had a very varied career and I know it's an interesting beginning um, and I think you joined Moonpig in 2006, is that right? There we go. Yeah. Love to learn a bit more about that, that early part of your career. Okay, so it's anything but linear really. <laughs> um, so I started off, I studied uh, mechanical engineering at Brighton and I then went into research for a couple of years doing uh, vibration analysis, obvious. Um, <laughs> and then I took the next logical career move, which was to go to a small giftware uh, retail business called More Balls Than Most. I don't think anybody's in the room is actually old enough to remember it, but it was the company that invented three juggling balls in a box that were then sold millions and millions of times. A tremendously exciting sort of business, very a lot of anarchy around it, and we went fantastically bust, um, <laughs> having, you know, sold to Marks and Spencers and WH Smiths and everything. So we wanted to teach the world to juggle. Um, so that had gone uh, pear-shaped. So I then went and joined a plastics and rubber manufacturing business because that was an obvious move. 
uh, for about six months before deciding that actually I should go and join Marks and Spencers. So I went and joined Marks and Spencers as a technologist, initially in packaging, and then I moved into the buying departments and did stationary toys and gifts, which is the first time I got into sort of stationary buying. So that was very sort of logical. And then after, and I had a great time at Marks and Spencers. Uh, it was really where I cut my teeth on retail and, uh, and consumers and all that sort of, you know, fashion, all mm-hmm. those sort of interesting things that I still love today. If you cut me in half, I'm, I'm still green and gold, I think. <laughs> so so I, I jumped ship, actually. I'd been in for about five years and I'd got involved in Marks and Spencer's emerging tech sort of special interest group. And I'd spent some time at... Uh, uh, MIT in Boston, the Media Lab, looking at emerging technologies. And this was around the time of the dawn of tech, you know, and uh, GPS. They had trainers that knew where they were going and things. And I, I got terribly excited by all this. And then uh, I was offered a, a startup uh, business that Hallmark were one of my suppliers at Marks & Spencer's were, were starting a business around WAP. Do you remember WAP? Does anybody remember WAP? It was probably the worst marketed technology ever. (laughs) Effectively, it was mobile internet. um, And everybody was talking about WAP. So I thought, I'll go and do some WAP. So I joined this startup business uh, and did about three, four years of that, doing mobile messaging. And then Hallmark decided that we were running video on Nokia 7210s. Do you remember the phone in the Matrix? Snake 2. Yeah, the Matrix phone. We were running video on those phones, which was fantastic, but nobody was ever going to buy it because there weren't enough people who had those phones. So we were well ahead of the curve. And eventually Hallmark shelved that. So I then ended up back at Hallmark HQ um, supplying Marks and Spencers with stationary gifts. And I did that for too long. That was a bad move. And eventually I decided I needed to get out and I needed to get back to tech. And I was in a card business. I wanted to get back to tech. Mm -hmm. I Googled, you know, who's doing tech with cards. And this little business called Moonpig popped up, being run by a guy called Nick Jenkins, who you've probably all seen on Dragon's Den, etc. And Nick, I wrote to Nick and I said, I think what you're doing is interesting. I want to get into tech. I'm in cards. Uh, Can I come and have a cup of coffee? And he said, you can, but I haven't got any jobs because I think I'm just about to go bust. And I went and had a cup of coffee with Nick and we got on, on, on really well. We kept in touch for about a year. And then he came back to me and said, you know what, I think I'm, I've turned the corner. Uh, we're just about to uh, make a little bit of profit this year. Do you want to come and have another conversation? And so Nick and I decided that, you know, I'd join and I sat next to him for a year just so that he could check that I wasn't a twit, in his words. And we decided from before I joined, we decided that I would sit next to him for a year. If I wasn't a twit, he'd make me MD. And we'd run it for another three years, sell it. He could go to the beach and I'd be left to look after the business afterwards. And that was the plan, really, that we discussed, which I thought was great and he thought was great. And that's pretty much what we did. Um, <laughs> it took us a little bit longer, as these things do. Um, but it, but it, was, uh, it was a lesson, really, in taking control of your own career, I think, when we talk about JBM and about recruiting, I was talking earlier, you know, there's two times in my life where I've actually taken control and said, right, I'm going to write to someone rather than go to a recruitment agency. I've just said, I like that business. I want to work. For. And those have probably been the two best jobs I've ever done, actually. I'm doing us out of a job there. Ian. That's a, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, I respect I that massively. Um, I wasn't briefed on that. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair we'll enough. come on to recruit. Yeah, we will come on later. to that. Yes, thank you. Um, no, it's and and I think fortune favors the brave, right? And and clearly that's something that you know nothing venture, nothing gained, and uh, it, it certainly worked out. So what was it like when you got there? What was Moonpig in the early days? 
Yeah, it like, was um, it was it was small. Nick had done the hard yards. Nick really had done the hard yards. You know, the, the time when, over, you know, the overheads were ten times the earnings for the first few years. So so he'd done five years to get it to break even. So I joined, and we had a we had a factory in that um, industrial heartland of Chelsea. Um, <laughs> we, had, we had a tiny little office in Chelsea, and we sat upstairs and downstairs another little office with the printer and customer services and dispatch. And then we used to rush the cards to uh, to, to the post office. Um, there was about a dozen people. We were turning over 1.8 million, I think, and just about you know breaking even. Awesome. So clearly not as gla- not as glamorous in the beginning, but over the next sort of what five years, it, it probably really started to kick on so what what was that next phase like so i think where where the business was it it had been growing slowly and the first thing was the product was really good so the idea of you know nick had always been really irritated by the fact that you send a card with a joke on it to somebody and you know the the name is the wrong name so the joke's implied and it just really irritated him he used to tip exit out and write the name in um, and so the timing was right for that problem to be solved, albeit what seemed like a small problem. But you change that name and suddenly the card becomes thoughtful and it becomes meaningful and it becomes much, much funnier. You know, and, and effectively we sell jokes for a living. And so that was, that was really a good piece of tech. The product was right. The second thing really, and this was, you know, my first year was, was spent introducing TV uh, as, as advertising. And I suspect that as my coffin disappears off this planet and the curtains pull, I shall hear those four lovely notes of the Mooka jingle. I suspect it will follow me to the grave. But we were looking really for a scalable acquisition route. So we knew the product was right. We knew that when we got a customer, they told their friends or they sent cards to people and those people became customers. But it just wasn't fast enough. It was taking too long. So we needed a scalable acquisition route. Um, and I wish, we could, I wish I could say that TV was my idea, but it wasn't, actually. It was one of our competitors went on TV. Uh, we, we only had one competitor at the time. It was a company called Remind for You. We've subsequently gone, gone under, but it was run by, uh, or part of the team was Carol Vorderman. And suddenly, t- this, this TV advert, we hadn't even considered TV at that time. And suddenly there was this Remind for You were advertising greeting cards on TV, which everybody had thought was mad. Why would you advertise a greeting card on TV? Now, I was doing one thing right at that time, which was I was monitoring the competition. And Remind for You had sequential order numbers on their orders. And I was ordering from them every week and plotting it on a graph so I could see how they were doing. So when I saw them come up on TV, I started ordering every day. You know, we were sending cards to friends, relatives and everything. Tell us what the number is, you know, so they didn't spot us doing it. But we actually plotted their orders every single day for the entire length of the TV campaign. And from that, I was able to do the maths. And, you know, Moonpig is fanatical about data, real data, stuff that means stuff. And from those measurements, we were able to sort of, you know, approximate how many new customers they got from their TV spend. And we went and found out how much they spent on TV. And so we had a cost per acquisition. And from that cost per acquisition, I knew from our lifetime value calculations that actually that was not a mile away from interesting for us. So that really triggered us to go look at, uh, at TV, which is a bit of a problem because none of us had, in the team at the time had ever made a TV advert. Um, so it's like, oh, who's going to do that then? And Nick went, I'm not doing it, you do it. Rah, rah, rah. So, so off I went to make a TV advert and uh, 
I found a really good creative agency and I found a media buying agency and I resisted every single temptation I could to get involved and, and just said, look, you guys know what you're doing. I can see I'm the low, apprentice episode you know, right it is, now. It is, yes. yeah, it is just like that where you get to, you've got to find the people that are right to do the ads. The only thing I did say was when when we were using a storyboard, which was around the Bewitched ad. Do you remember Bewitched, the TV show Bewitched? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the storyboards we had in the first Moonpig ad. You know, it was like because there was a lot of that 1950s graphics on cards, and so we were saying, well, we should take the cards really to the customers, and that whole kind of magic, you know, Tabitha's nose twitching and sparkles. If you go back and look at the very first Moonpig ad, it's got a lot of that in it. It was on the storyboard. And I can remember the meeting where the director, a guy called Tom Chalice, said to me, uh, look, he said, um, jingles are really passe at the moment and nobody's doing them. But I think with this 50s thing, I think, I think it might hold a jingle. What do you think? And I'm so glad I said yes, because I think it, <laughs> it, it was the Marmite factor with that ad, you know, that really made the difference. It was also, the, <laughs> nobody on the board saw the ad until the Friday before it was airing on the Monday, right? <laughs> Nobody, not even Nick, right? And I showed it to the board on the Friday, and I have to say it's the worst weekend of my entire career <laughs> because it, it marmited the board, you know, and, and we had half the board demanding, A, that we pulled it, B, that my head was on the block, and what on earth had I done, and what was this jingle thing, and was I, you know, was I taking the piss? Was this was a series? Um, and, and Nick, bless him, was, was an absolute fan from day one, as were some of the other board members, but it, it divvied it down the middle, so it was pretty scary. So. Amazing. So that was, and that really was the trigger for the growth. That was our, our customer, mm. uh, customer acquisition. That was what made it really accelerate and we started off with a very small amount of spend and we grew that spend. Moonpig now spends probably more than 10, 12 million a year on TV still. And it's been self-financing. We've never had to go get money for it. Nice. So it's a very fast turnaround and a, a very a decent way of marketing. And I guess these days it's not just cards, is it? So when did that, that next stage of its evolution come in and yeah. why? So we were very good at saying no to stuff. So we didn't, we didn't, we wanted to get into, well, some people wanted us to get into gifts very early on. It would have been a very natural thing. But we used to have a saying, which is we, we don't want to have a warehouse full of remote controlled helicopters. Uh, you know, and I think if we'd got into it too early, then we would have had. We wanted to take the high ground. We are the card supplier. You know, we're the number one personalized card supplier. So we, we advertised on TV for quite a while. We then started thinking about the proposition and, you start off from a tech perspective saying, well, we do personalised things, so let's do personalised T-shirts and personalised mugs and personalised this. And it becomes a bit commoditized. Actually, if you take it back to the customer and you say, well, what is the customer getting from us? They're getting a birthday card. So what can we put with a birthday card that makes sense? And actually, for 50% of the part, well, probably more than 50%, I quite like flowers as well. But certainly, for, for, for you know, buying flowers for people on their birthday is a, is a, is a great add-on. So we started a flower business. The first, the MVP was pretty poor. It was, try, let's try and get flowers through a letterbox, which never works well because uh, they're, not, they're not the right shape to get through a letterbox. But um, we tried squashing a few uh, dodgy chrysanthemums into a, into a, into a box. Uh, it was pretty horrific. But it gave, us, it gave us an insight that people did actually want flowers uh, because they bought them and complained about them. Um, so, so we then found a decent flower supplier and flowers are now you know, a multi-million pound business for Moonpig. Probably, well, when I left, we were third in the UK for courier flowers. 
behind uh, Interflora and Marks and Spencer's. Probably it might even be bigger than that now. Um, it's not a business to go into lightly. You know, Valentine's Day, I can remember the week before Valentine's Day sitting there thinking, I've booked and, you know, and committed to, I don't know, 1.2 million roses. And it's the week before Valentine's Day, and they are still on the bush in Kenya. Oh my God. <laughs> so it's an amazing process, right? Uh, sometime between Christmas and New Year, you trim all <coughs> those bushes, all those roses, doesn't matter what stage they're at, you trim them all between Christmas and New Year. It takes 48 days for the roses. How do we get roses all at the same time? That's how it happens, right? So, so you then go in the week before Valentine's Day, you harvest the whole lot. You've got to chemically treat them, reduce the temperature, get them into refrigerated containers. We had to pay the lorry drivers extra money to get them to the airport. They get to the airport, they're in refrigerated containers, they go to Rotterdam, they're made up into bouquets, they're driven through the tunnel, they're taken to our factory, and they have to go with the right card. And then we give them to the <laughs> delivery guys. <laughs> logistical nightmare. It's a logistical nightmare. So it was hard, but it was worth it. You know, yeah. it's a big business, but it's not one to go into easily. Amazing. No, I'm, I guess another a part of it, and I guess JBM doing what we do, I'm interested in the story about the team. So yeah. how did that come about? What was the team like in the early early days and, and how did you kind of build that over time? Okay, so, so the first thing to say is that, you know, the team did everything. So it was a, a really high performance, a really high performing team. And I, and I was blessed with a really really good team in the early days um i'm not quite sure i think we probably had a lot of luck in terms of the first few hires but as you start to develop a team around you your sort of management team and you realize that it's a really good management team we started to get more and more protective about you know who we let in frankly and you know so so i used the team to recruit their peers a lot so it was a kind of a, a collaborative process. You could expect three or four interviews to get, you know, to get anywhere. You could expect a maths test and an English test. Nobody does that anymore. We kept hiring people and they couldn't add up. It was a nightmare, <laughs> you know. So maths and English tests, and we had different levels depending on what roles you were going for. We'd set real problems for people to solve. Again, people just don't do that at, at interviews. You know, I can remember recruiting an FD and setting a task around, you know, look, we've found this acquisition channel. We want to spend a million pounds on it tomorrow. What questions are you going to ask? And, and most of the candidates just had no idea, you know. And the one candidate that came in and answered it properly was the one that we hired. So, so we, we, we invested a lot of time in, in recruiting. I remember you telling me when we first met, uh, slightly different incentivization of the team than maybe other businesses. Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yeah, again, I think we liked we liked being different. It's good to be different, and it's good to challenge the norm. So, bonuses and annual reviews. And what, is there anyone from HR here or from HR businesses? Bonuses and annual reviews and HR actually. I don't, I'm not really that keen on any of them. That's not, that's not really true. But you know, bonuses I think in in companies can be very divisive. Um, it's always really difficult to set them up. You know, and you, you, I'd worked for Marks and Spencer, some big and Hallmark, who had big schemes. And generally speaking, what happens is they come up with a whole load of metrics, which is just crazy. And then you go through the year and some good stuff happens and some shit stuff happens. And you go to your review. And if you've done all right, you'll get 70% of your bonus, right? It's kind of 70 80% of your bonus. It's kind of standard. So we did away with that. And we said, well, actually, because there's a whole load of process and documentation and you come away from it feeling like, why didn't I get 
80% or 90%. We did away with that and we recruited people. The expectation was that they would be brilliant. Okay, So we would say to people at interview, you're joining a brilliant team and you're going to be brilliant. And so my expectation is I will pay you 100% of your bonus. So we turn bonuses upside down. So the, my expectation is you earn 100% of the bonus. If you don't earn 100% of the bonus, you should be concerned. You should be really concerned. So we flipped it completely. Most of my team, uh, or pretty much all of my team, earned 100% of their bonus every year. It's the same in financial measures, you know, if you work out the sums, if you just, you know, you just balance it. It's completely different in terms of uh, emotionally what it means to people. And we all know that when you're working in teams, you know, people are on the team or they're not. If they're not, we ding their bonus or we'd exit them. We did, we did, we did lose some people, but generally speaking, you know, the retention rates for the first five years were about two percent. Was was the churn rate of staff? And you know, when other businesses, I talked to other businesses that thirty percent. You know, so we flipped it upside down bonuses, and it worked. The, the other thing was that the corrective measure, if you didn't give hundred percent of bonuses, people's faces dropped. They were like, oh, oh, oh what have we done? Annual reviews we didn't do. We did uh, weekly. One-to-ones, every manager spent an hour with every member of staff every week. The main problem with that is how many meeting rooms you need as you grow. And we had to build loads of two-person meeting rooms as we grew because by the time we got to 160, 200 people, you know, that's a lot of meetings. But but every person had a weekly one-to-one with their manager, which means it's constantly being assessed. You're constantly talking. It's an investment in communication. It's a good thing because it means people actually do less. (laughs) But what they do do is understood and been communicated and talked about. And so it's a good use of time, but it's a big commitment. And you alluded there to, I guess, the size that maybe it got to over a period of time. And I think in 2011, you sold for a fair amount of money. We was did. It, uh, 120 million. I guess there are probably people in this room that may have been through fundraising processes or are interested in that. Can you tell us a bit about your experience of that whole sort of process? Yeah. So the sale process took a long time. You know, there was a sort of a six-month warming-up period, I guess, where we were getting our, our stuff together with our bankers. And to some degree, we were well-prepped. And it's something that I guess everybody can do from day one when you, if you're in startups. We had, it's very nerdy, this, but we were absolutely anal about our, our filing system. We had a filing system that was like really, really tight. Everything, every contract was in the contracts folder. Every, you know, so we had all of our paperwork. Every metric for marketing was in the marketing folder. We had data coming out of our ears, and it, but it was all really, really organised. So it was quite easy from that perspective to to prep for the presentation. The actual presentation of the business, you know, the key thing is deciding when to start. When is the business at its most throffy? I.e., there's still something left in the business for the acquirer, but you're going to get maximum value for it. So that was it was a fair bit of discussion about that. We then pitched to myself and my finance director, Paul Lansbury, who did an awful lot of the legwork. We pitched to 26 people, minimum half a day each pitch. Some of those pitches went for a day, and some of them that we then followed up on would go three or four days. So in total, it took six months just to get to a position where we had somebody that we wanted to work with and then there was probably another three months of legals and you know bits and pieces so it was it was really enjoyable actually 
in a painful sort of sadistic kind of way, but it was it was a masochistic way. Um, but it was it was an enjoyable process, made easier by the fact we were organised before we started. I think. Yeah, and I guess you did something that not everyone does. You stuck around, so talk us through that because you were there for quite a few more years post sale. Yeah, I stayed for another places. four and a bit, four years, four years, four years after after the sale. So it was a change culturally because we joined together with the Photobox group was was how the sale had occurred. So suddenly there was Moonpig and Photobox, and very quickly afterwards we were in the same building. Two very different businesses, different cultures. You know, Photobox was much more, much better at sales, actually. They were much more of a sales culture. Our business was a bit, you know, more creative, I guess, and a bit more, a bit softer and a bit more, you know, well, they didn't like our upside-down bonuses for starters. You know, that was, that was not traditional, you know. So there were a few things that kind of culturally changed. Our business was, you know, Moonpig, one of the things I'm really proud of is that it was, you know, it was actually the majority of my management team were women and a lot of them were mums who were working on shortened hours. It's a fantastic pool resource to tap into and not enough companies do, which is why I like it because you, you get to hire really, really good, smart people just for the sake of working 35 hours rather than 40 a little bit of flexibility goes a long way. But so we had this sort of really nice kind of balanced collaborative team and the Photobox team was much more salesy. You know, there, were, there was a lot of drive and a lot of passion. And I think we learned from them and they learned from us, but it was a challenge. And then VCs as well. You know, we had suddenly had, we'd gone from private ownership to six VCs, which initially was going to scare me. You know, it was like, oh, I've heard things about VCs. Are VCs? No, no. <laughs> heard things about VCs um, but I have to say that the investment team that, that, that worked with us were were brilliant they were so supportive and I ended up one of the things if you've got funder you know fund, uh, VCs are full of really smart people right and what I think a lot of startups and businesses don't do is use that actually right so so we went to our lead investor I, I wanted to get I was looking at the gifting business and I wanted somebody to do like really good market analysis and you know tell me what's happening in that market now if anybody knows how to do that well it's a VC because it's what they do they spend all their time looking at markets and analyzing markets and trying to understand where the opportunities are in markets so we actually pulled in you know help from our lead investors and, and got them to do some of the legwork for us and it was really successful it was really good good projects and so we had really good experience with VCs they were great good stuff not what you always hear is it no See? I was going to say no, there definitely you go. not and what prompted this in so you've lived 10 years of your life pretty much yeah you're taking it from from just about turning a profit to uh, exiting and then staying on for that next period what made you go and was that what must have been a tough decision yeah it was it, it was and it wasn't I think you know there was there was there was an incentive for me to stay a period of time and that incentive had kind of run out but also I think the business had had grown to a size where I couldn't really get my arms around it you know it was becoming an enterprise business and and that's not really my own sweet spot I think I'm I'm happier when I've got a really close connection with the team and and, and that's kind of you know so, so it was it got a bit big for me really so yeah I was I was ready to ready to ready to leave but it was difficult it was you know it's a big part of my life yeah definitely wow, an amazing story uh, and what have you been up to since then since then i took i took a bit of time off actually which was quite nice and i've done a little bit i did some uh, interim work so i've done a couple of interim roles i was uh, because my career is logically sort of linear 
I did some work with Sarah Beanie on Tepelo, the uh, online estate agency. And then I've, I've just finished 10 months at uh, an AI business, uh, BioBeats, which looks at mental health using biometrics. Uh, it's just moved to uh, Oxford University now. It's a really exciting field and business. So I've done a few bits and pieces. Um, I've also uh, taken the opportunity to start a family. So I've got uh, a little baby now, which is rather nice. Uh, better late than never. Um, but she's rather sweet. So I was I had the luxury of spending a year with her. You know, her first year, I was pretty much at home the whole time, which was fabulous. So she's now too. Um, and I'm just starting now to think, do you know what? Actually, I've done a little bit of non-exec work as well. Sorry, I, I'm chairman of a business in my first years. Although I'm going to wrap that up at, at Christmas, I think, and look to another executive role because I'm starting to, you know, I'm itchy feet to get another team, I think, or to build another team because uh, that, I think, is what really uh, excites me. Yeah, because Ian and I had a conversation maybe six, nine months ago and things were, I, I didn't yeah. think you were going to go back to it and then it sounds like something is cropped up that might, Something's might bubbling tempt under you back. that I'm looking, yeah. Yeah, that, that I'm looking at. So, yeah, Exciting. Maybe. Great stuff. Well, it's an amazing story. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing thank uh, you. those insights with us. I guess we wanted to put it to the floor really in case anyone had any questions for Ian. Um, anything you wanted to know? Go on, Lucas. Um, question. Um, Lucas Roker, Blacklight Advisory. I'd be interested to hear a bit more about that transition where you guys merge with the other organization. Yeah. We're doing a lot of culture development with in financial services around how to improve your culture, what's going on within the organization. Yeah. I mean, mergers and acquisitions are the painful ones. What yeah. made it difficult and how did you guys bridge that? Well, I've got to say, you know, the first thing is when they bought us, they knew that we were a good business. They weren't buying us because we were failing business that they wanted to turn around. So, so that context is important. And, you know, to, to their credit, first 18 months, they did nothing. They were hands off. It was like, you don't muck this up. Let the guys get on. Let them do their thing. Let them deliver what they've said they're going to deliver. And we were delivering. And so they, there was really not much interference at all. When we moved the offices together, that became a bit more difficult. And there was a, there was a sort of a process of, you know, we put production together, made sense, right? And then we put, this is another reason why I left, really, because I was really doing myself out of a job. So I'd had everything. And then we put production together into a group function with a group, uh, a group production director. And then we put finance together. And, and then we started to merge other areas of the business. And that was where, I guess, there wasn't really any sort of major fallout. I actually think... Might be blowing my own trumpet a bit, but I actually think that the Moonpig influence on the photo box was, was really welcomed. I think they'd been under so much pressure because their product was slightly more commoditized. They're in a really competitive uh, sector. They've been under so much pressure that they found, you know, working with Moonpig, that they could actually uh, start to express themselves slightly differently and, and, and behave <coughs> slightly differently. And it brought all sorts of questions about culture up. We did some work with. You know, on the senior team, we did some work around you know, behaviours and strengths, and so we invested quite a lot into that. It was quite funny, actually. We did a thing called Strength Scope, where you go to all the managers and you you look at, you know, what are their characteristic strengths. And um, my team were really funny because we we all got sort of there's four, about 35, 40 strengths sort of things. So it might be critical thinking or strategic thinking or whatever, you know. And uh, you get your little wheel with your strengths on it. And we said as a team, we said, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll overlay them all and see what we look like as a team, you know, and then we'll compare that to the Photobots team. You know, we look very, very different. But the really funny thing was that my team 
out of 35 things, there was one that we scored zero for, which was results driven. We scored zero. Nine in my management team, we scored zero on results driven, which was really interesting. Where we scored highly, we, our max was, was collaboration, and the second highest was empathy, which is not a term you hear a lot in sort of management talk today. But, you know, if you're in a fast-growing business, then, you know, empathy as a, as a strength. When you're bouncing it off the walls, you know, trying to grow and there's all sorts of chaos and difficulties in a fast-growing business, that empathy was really strong. So the photo box side were much more results-driven, you know, and, and so, so there was that sort of interesting differences of dynamics which needed to be unpicked. So I would say do the work to understand it and unpick it and have all those conversations. So thank you. Any other questions? Well, uh, ladies first. Thank you so much. It's super interesting. What has been probably the hardest decision you ever had to make regarding people? Good question. That's a stinker. (laughs) (laughs) You can go to another question. Um, I think there have been occasions where people have, you know, I've made some failures in in hiring, you know, and which you're going to make if 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 you're going to hire that many people in that period of time. And sometimes it's really hard to, because, because you hire people who are really, really good and they're great people, but they just don't fit. And it's not it's not personal, and it's not because they're not great. It's just because the hole you're trying to put that person into, or the team around them, the chemistry is not quite right, you know. And they're bouncing off each other, or there are stresses, or, or whatever. And and if you you know, you can. A lot of businesses would put up with it, but we had kind of a zero tolerance on it. You know, and it was just, we were so precious about, the t- I still see the team, you know, it's been three and a half years and we, we were out for drinks last week, right? And we're all in different businesses now. It's a really tight team and we're really protective of one another. And so there were some really tough calls I had to make on on, 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 on hiring and, and letting people go or having those tough conversations. But you have to take your medicine early. If you don't take your medicine early, then it will fester and it will, and, and suddenly your brilliant team a year down the line, we'll be falling apart. People will leave, you know? And so you have to make some really tough calls on that, I think, sometimes. I find them tough because you know, these people, these people, these are all people I like, you know, I hired them in the first place. Yeah, it's that common saying, hire slow, fire fast, which... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never that easy. <laughs> Never that easy. Um, thanks, Karina. Um, Nelson, we'll, we'll kind of work our way down. Yeah, Do you want to go next? I mean, that's a, thank you for sharing your story. It's so, so fascinating. Is there anything that you'd do differently? Oh God, loads! <laughs> no, I think there's not a lot. the jingle. Well, I don't. Yeah, well, it's, is there anything, anything, any sort of macro thing that I would do differently? It's interesting you mentioned um, earlier on in your career you stayed too long, and you wish you'd make the yes, quicker. Yeah, from a career perspective, yeah, I definitely think that taking control of your career at an earlier stage um, is is good. I made I made a mistake. I moved customer services into my production area. So one of the things that I was very keen on was 
having customer services. Well, I wasn't initially. We had customer service in the office and then we moved the factory. We built a new factory and moved customer services to sit in the factory. And within two weeks, we hired new people and everything. And within two weeks, I just knew it was wrong. You know, you, know, you, just, you just go, oh, what have I done? Oh, no, this is a nightmare. And stuck with it for about a month and then just said, this is not going to work. So we brought it back. We moved offices and we put customer services in the middle of the room, sitting down the middle of the room. And we all sat around. So marketing, tech, myself, finance, we sat around customer services. So we could hear the conversation with the customer. And this comes from, you know, when I worked at Marks and Spencer's, you were encouraged, you need to go to stores once a week, minimum. doesn't matter which store, you go to stores once a week, you talk to customers. They still do that to this day. And I got to a digital business and I'm like, well, where's the customer? Where's the voice of the customer in this business? So we sat them in the middle of the room. They're still there. So we could hear the conversations, you know. And I used to wind my, my CTO up and say, hey, you've spent £100,000 on a system to tell us when the thing's gone down and I'm getting it from the phone call first. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. so, so that was a mistake. Putting customer services outside Earshot was probably the big, big one. That's one. There were lots. Yeah. The jingle is just, the name is just as iconic as the jingle. Yes. Um, quite different at the time. Yeah. How did you come up with Moonpig? Well, I did. Nick Nick was the obviously the founder and he, he came up with it initially. He was looking for, so at the time, he was looking for something that was uh, easy to pronounce, not misspellable, you know, uh, that, that couldn't be misspelled, and that there was zero Google searches for. Okay. And he spent four days and looking for something that was easy and put all sorts of words together. Unfortunately, it had to be Moonpig. And Moonpig, I say unfortunately because he didn't want it to be Moonpig initially because that was his nickname at school. Oh, okay. Um, and he didn't want it to be that, but everything else just turned up blank, you know, and, 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 and Moonpig, there were no searches for. And obviously in the early days, you couldn't bid on people's brand terms you know google changed the rules on that but so so it was it was one of those things moon pig you can't misspell it it's it's phonetic no nobody you know the only reason you would type in it was great from a marketing perspective because if if people came direct to the url you know then you attribute them to another marketing channel right because nobody types in moon pig accidentally right it's just so uh, if we were personalized cards then it might personalizedcars.com, how marketing metrics would have been a lot more difficult to unpick. But yeah, it was his nickname. How did he get his nickname? How, I don't know. <laughs> he won't tell me. He won't tell me. Um, uh, I don't know. But uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's served him well. Yeah. I'll take the other question. Hi. Um, so I work at Go Compare in the strategy investments team. So we're also no stranger to Marmite Jingle. But um, <laughs> just given you, part of the thing that we look at, we work with our marketing team a lot, and we're still constantly trying to optimise our other channels. Yep. Um, you've obviously built the business in an era when all these new channels emerged at once, yeah. Facebook and the various social ones. How did you, I guess, on one side, staff appropriately for that? And given you were so data focused, did you, you must have loved that. You must have loved that, oh, now I can, I mean, you can measure TV vaguely, then you somehow managed uh, we, to do it. <laughs> I mean, we, we managed, uh, so, so it's interesting. So 
when we start, I mean, to be honest, the social thing hadn't, the lid hadn't blown off the top of the social back in 2006, really. It was only just mm. starting, you know. I mean, and the first thing I did when I got to uh, Moonpig was stop the affiliate marketing completely, turn it off. Because there were only two people in the marketing team and one of them was doing affiliate marketing and, and it was only accounting for 5% of the customers. So we just turned it off, which everybody said we were mad. You know, this was heresy. This was, you can't do that. I said, well, we were just going to do it. So we did it and we, we did something else. But we, we were, on the data side, we blend, we, we used exit surveys. Obviously, some measurements we could get empirically from, from Google search or whatever, you know, and other data we took from exit surveys and then we had a balancing equation and we did all sorts of, we built our own little attribution model. That got more and more sophisticated to the point where we could be running three TV ads and I could tell you for any particular ad run in a month, how many months I was going to return gross margin against that ad, that ad, specific ad. So we got quite sophisticated really and sort of blending the, the lifetime value of different customers, you know, whether it's card customers, gift customers, flower customers, we could actually do that. So, so we got quite, we got quite into it really. Staffing, it just kind of grew over time, really. We, we added it in as it made sense. We never had enough people. You know, you, you just never do. But we, we, we focused on making sure that we weren't just... I think there's, there's a tendency to say we've got to be doing everything. You know, oh, you've got to be doing Twitter. You've got to be doing Facebook. You've got to be doing this. And we just didn't do it until we had the resources and the measurements in place to do it which, you know, caused frustrations, but there's just no point in spending another marketing pound if you don't know what it's going to give you because you're just going to build a problem for yourself and you're going to end up in trouble. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, thank you very much, Ian. I think everyone's thirsty and ready for food, but that was brilliant. Thank you so much for thank your you. insights and time and thank you, everyone, for the questions. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.